Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi. I don't think I've ever given a content warning for an episode before, uh, and for some of you this may seem like a really strange episode to do it on. Uh, but this episode is really about uh, school bullying and the horror, uh, I genuinely believe, of school bullying uh, and, and the long-term psychological impact it can cause, the the sense of outsidership, the, uh, the, the belief that you are in some way to blame for damage caused to you. And given that theme, I would really be ashamed of myself if it caused any more. So uh, just giving a warning. Uh, thank you for listening. I uh, hope that wasn't too much of an interruption. This is I Am Inescu. Gardening, Allegra says. You'll like that, gardening. I glance up from my breakfast. For the past two weeks, Allegra and I have circled each other like hyenas in this apartment. 
She tells me that I will feel better when I'm working again. That the big city is a difficult place to be when you're alone and without purpose. That things aren't always as bad as they seem. I mention idly to her that I'd love to hear more about her work with the Askew Town Planner's Office. This expansion project I've heard so much about, what does it mean exactly? When will it begin? She tells me with a small laugh that my curiosity is adorable, but that sort of thing is strictly confidential, darling. For the time being, at least. She asks me whether I'd be interested in editing the city archives, as a part-time position. We no longer converse. We only use words to trap one another. Something has broken between us, and I can't say in honesty whether she's been changed by Askew, or if she can simply no longer trust me to say what she's thinking. There are work meetings now that go on until late into the night, and when she comes back to the luxurious apartment we now share, her eyes are gleaming with the vision and promise of something unspoken. There's a drawer now, beneath her desk, containing papers and a laptop, that are kept locked safely away. I do not know what the expansion is. I suspect that it means I have limited time. Perhaps Allegra knows today that I am considering breaking into the drawer beneath her desk while she's at work to gather some clue about what the expansion is, or what's behind all of this, or how I might escape, because she says, kindly, gardening. There's a friend who's a trustee at the old preparatory school. They have extensive grounds, and they're looking for some attendants to help them keep it tidy. Nice, quiet work. Plenty of time to think. And you'd be outside, David. She takes out her laptop, minimises a document that looks official with some kind of sketch of a tower, and shows me a website. A long, sumptuous gravel drive, leading up across lawns towards a grand red brick edifice. A coat of arms above double gates. Allegra and I stare at each other both of us smiling. I do not discount the possibility that I have trust issues. Perhaps she's simply worried that I'm turning into a parasite here, another spoilt man-child who lounges on her sofa and refuses to do anything with himself. Either way, my relationship is dying, one smile at a time. I tell her I'd love to know more about the position. Two weeks later, I'm kneeling in the frost and dew of the great lawns that roll downwards from the sullen red brick of the old preparatory school, towards the fearsome, knife-bright mirror of the lake, buried in reeds that fade away into tall, ghostly birch. I pick at the warty black roots that come roiling up through the grass, seeking out weak points and angles with my gloved fingers, with my trowel. I flatter myself that I'm prizing them up as fast as I can, 
And in fact, since I started here, I have already developed several semi-efficient strategies for uprooting them in the absence of any instruction in this groundskeeper's position. But there's no end to them. The roots drop deeper and grow wider and thicker than I could ever have anticipated. On my first day, I was given the gloves and a key to the shed and a thick handshake from the headmaster. Since then, I've been all but left to my own devices. Tonight, at least, offers something unusual. There's going to be a concert, an outdoor recital, tribute to some great tormented Escovian composer. The extravagant spectacle will encourage the wealthy parents of the children who come here to make donations that will enable further extravagant spectacles for years to come. Perhaps a new stadium, or an opera hall, or some other venue for future fundraisers of this kind. I'm not expecting much, it's fair to say. But it's tonight, in the grounds of the school, that I encounter the first Magda. I shouldn't say the first. I have no way of knowing how many Magdas there were before I began working at the old preparatory school. Whether this is the timely glimpse of something awful blossoming into existence for the first time, or simply the perpetuation of some grander cycle. The first Magda of my experience, let's say, is the one I encounter that night. My shift ends. And yet I linger on, like a shadow in the grounds of the school, unwilling to return to an apartment that is not mine and a lover I no longer recognise. The sun has gone down beneath the dark trees. The lanterns are lit. A miniature forest of colourful tents have been planted across the school's central lawns, split by its broad gravel drive. Cushions are laid out beneath the canopies, with immaculately assembled picnic selections and bottles of bubbly. Tonight the rich get to play at being without a home. And as I stalk the edges of the grounds with trowel in hand, careful not to stray too close to the illuminated spaces where I might be seen by a student or a guest, I begin to hear the whispers about Magdalena Marin gathering in the eddies and the ebb tides of conversation. Unbelievable, one father mutters, adjusting his son's bow tie. Unbelievable that they never expelled her. They should have expelled her, the boy says, beaming upwards. You know that, Dad. Everyone knows what she's like. It's just that her parents went to the head of house. They're odd too, of course. The whole family. A real pack of freaks. They are, Dad. Everyone says it. And they went to the head of house, and they threatened to kick up a fuss about it to the newspapers. Everyone's too scared to do anything these days, a mother announces to her daughters. Nobody takes action. They should have got rid of her. I don't want someone like that in your school. I had half a mind to take you out both myself. Two giggling teenagers, running hand in hand, declare their intentions to find Magdalena Marin and push her down and spit champagne in her eyes and run away. Can you believe what she did? They ask each other. Can you believe what she did?
As it turns out, the Marims have pitched their picnic blanket and tent right on the other side of the school grounds, close to the dark and empty lake. And by the time I arrive, they're already surrounded by three or four other parents, quivering with excited anticipation of a real blowout argument to come. One lead parent stands at their head, his two sons perched at either side, one hand defensively on both of their shoulders, and he spits a few opening salvos in hope of response. Thought that was you, Marin. He tries again. You've got guts coming at all, you know. That last one causes Magda's father to look up from his half-empty can of beer. He has a thin, ruined complexion, both sickly pale and podged with purple-red. His ears are far too large, his nose a gnarled, alcoholic knob of nostrils and cartilage, and his eyes are fearful already. Behind him, sullenly toying with a long metal tent peg, sits Magda herself, a shorter, scrag-haired echo of her father. From darkness I watch, and as she looks up to acknowledge the crowd, her expression is one that I'll come to know well. It's the same expression that will cross the faces of every single one of the Magdas I will come to witness at the old preparatory. It's a face I recognise in myself. Frozen and flinching all at once, hostile and frightened, petrified in the literal meaning of the term. Already wounded by the insults or the blows that are still to come. I will listen to the good-looking boys and girls in the sixth form of the old preparatory discussing that face over and over in reference to three dozen Magdas and all with a scientific enraptured disgust. How is it even possible to look like that? So hideous a face arranged into so ridiculous, so pathetic an expression. How can she look so awful and so foolish, they'll ask each other, and evoke so little pity in us? Can you believe her? They whisper to each other from the depths of the crowd. The lead parent says, It's a disgrace that your girl wasn't expelled. I just wanted you to know that. Mr. Marin says, That right, Brodsky. He swallows the rest of his beer in one gulp. From beneath Mr. Brodsky's grasp, one of the boys shifts his feet unhappily and whines, Dad, let's go. Mr. Brodsky pats his son heavily on the shoulder, acknowledging and dismissing the interruption in an instant, then bends down and gazes into Mr. Marin's eyes and loudly states that there is something wrong with Magda, that her actions and behaviour are indicative of an abnormal psychology, of something not right up here in the head. She should have been thrown out, he hisses. It's not normal what she did, and we never got an apology. Leave it, his son whispers ashamedly. Really, leave it, Dad. But Mr. Marin now gets to his own feet, weakly insisting that if anyone is owed an apology, it's Magda, who suffered far too much at the hands of boys like young Brodsky, cruel and spoilt little brats who've been getting away with it for years. That's kid stuff. Mr. Brodsky hollers back. Normal kid stuff. 
But your girl, your Magda, she takes it too far. It's not normal what she did. Spittle flexes his chin. His eyes are wild, and as he points an accusatory finger, I suddenly understand that his outrage is not directed at any harm Magda may have caused, or any injury that his children are perceived to have incurred. He's angry because he's right. There is something wrong with the girl who sits cross-legged on the picnic blanket, passing the long tent peg back and forth through her hands, and everyone can see it. There is something awful in the pitifulness of Magda's cheap, ill-fitting clothes, in her sullen expression and her refusal to act normally, in whatever it was that she did that is so clearly unacceptable to them all in the low adolescent stink that she's been carrying with her from classroom to classroom, and which might be ignored in another, but causes the boys to shove her into a broom closet and spray her with deodorant cans and soak her in water. To the adults, as to her peers, Magda is an insect. Vile in itself, vile in its helplessness. You crush her beneath your heel, and you hate her for allowing herself to be crushed. Yes, there's something wrong with her. There can be no other explanation. After all, why else would their children be so cruel? But now, right now, and perhaps for the first time, Mr. Marin is ready to fight on behalf of his daughter. His red fists are clenched, wavering back and forth, as if he's seconds away from swinging a punch at Mr. Brodsky, but with no clue how to go about it or what happens next or if he's allowed. The can of beer crunches threateningly beneath his fingers, spilling foam. He jabs a finger and shouts in desperation. Leave her be, you hear me. Just leave her be. I'm relieved at that moment to hear the clangour of stringed instruments tuning up from across the grounds. And Mr. Brodsky, all at once, seems to feel contempt for the entire altercation, and steps back. Your girl's all wrong, he says, and jabs one final finger to Magda, who finally looks up. You heard me. All wrong. About halfway through the third movement of the concert, the wind picks up, and the rain drives hard, and the parents and children are sent scurrying for their cars in their tuxedos and ball gowns, chased by bleating trustees of the school board with collection buckets, begging them not to forget the old preparatory fund. A few visitors remain behind, cowering under canvas, getting steadily drunker as the hours drag on, and abandoning all pretense of listening to the music. Most of the tents have simply been left for others to take away. Perhaps this will be my task in the morning. For now, though, I have found a place in amongst the old black oaks, in soft, wet grass, with my back against solid bark, away from everyone and everything, gazing out into the night. The breeze catches the vile screeching and honking of the orchestra, disrupting and weakening it as the noise carries towards me, disintegrating both pattern and order. 
until the music might just as well be the singing of the geese above me or the whistling of the winds below. Just one small cry in the night from just one direction. If I do make it out of askew, this is what I want to come back to. A place of my own, with four plain walls and windows, looking out over emptiness on all sides. Just empty skies and plains for miles, and no sound but the sound of the wind. Big windows. I don't care if it gets cold in the winter. I just want to see what's coming for me. I close my eyes now, just for a heartbeat. When I open them again, it's still dark, but the music has ended, and there's only one sound roiling through the night. It's sheer and horrid, the sound of a tent, loose from its moorings, rolling back and forth in the wind. There's a growl as the canvas draws back along the gravel, then lands with a loud sudden clap and draws back again. I get to my feet. Further along the lawn, I find another tent fluttering around a tree trunk, frantic and pale like a bird caught in a trap. And then the voices begin to carry. Don't move him, for God's sake. Did you call an ambulance? Did someone call an ambulance? Some way into the trees, surrounded by flailing torch beams and concern, I find a small crowd gathered around Mr. Brodsky. He is sprawled in the grass, unclothed and barely struggling. His palms and the heels of his naked feet are flat against the earth, pinned there by steel tent pegs that have been battered furiously in through the skin. His back is arched to the sky, rain dripping down his flanks. A human tent. He makes a small noise of distress, his eyes rolling up to meet us. And I understand that he is ashamed of his condition, that he does not want us to see him like this. I stare at him in wonderment, at the thin lines of violin string that have been bloodily sewn into the soft skin of his cheeks and stomach and buttocks, stretching out thin lines that are pegged into the earth in every direction to either side of him, forming silvery and unmistakable guide ropes for the still living body of the tent, the freak. That is Mr. Brodsky. They find Magda in the lake some time afterwards. I don't know what becomes of her father, but I'm certain his fate lies at the bottom of a bottle. Neither do I learn the nature of her original crime. The teachers and other groundskeepers say that it was guilt, that Magda attacked Mr. Brodsky in a fit of madness and then grew frightened and shameful when she saw what she had done. The older children repeat Mr. Brodsky's own thesis, that there was something wrong with Magda, something wrong with her, no more explanation needed than that. The younger children theorise that Magda did not drown at all, but is in fact still living in the woods roaming like a feral creature with a pocket full of violin string and a handful of tent pegs, looking for victims. 
I don't know which of these to believe myself. But I am surprised, at the start of the next autumn term, when a new batch of schoolchildren arrives at the gates of the old preparatory for the first year, and Magda is amongst them. I recognise her at once. She's in a different body, of course. She comes with a different set of circumstances, a different name. But her place within the school pecking order and the dispassionate revulsion she inspires in all those who persecute her is just the same. She comes in through the gates, clutching at her books, and you can already hear the whispers gathering around her, the spreading anger at the sheer offensiveness of her existence. Moved from upcountry. We'll see about that. Sitting right at the front of the class. We'll see about that. And what about that mass of tangled hair, spilling out over her collar in direct contrast to the straightened, bleached blonde locks of her peers? Isn't it obscene in its ugliness? Insulting in its absurdity and its chaos? There's something wrong with her, having that hair. Oh, we'll make her feel welcome, all right. And the second Magda bows her head deliberately over her empty notebook, as if she can already feel the hatred washing over her, and believes, wrongly, that the intensity of her silence and smallness is enough to fight it off. They've stolen her medicine again. Yanking at her hair as a distraction until she screams and loosens her grip on the bottle. They've scattered the little white tablets across the filthy cobblestones, leaving her to get onto her knees and pick them up one by one. I watch from the shadows as one of them strolls back afterwards, still half smiling but condescendingly concerned. That went too far. Sorry, Magda. Sorry and tosses the empty plastic bottle at her feet like a peace offering. As if he understands that Magda must be destroyed, but also that he should play a morally lighter part. He lingers on. Something's on his mind. He asks her, Why do you do it? Magda stares back. The boy presses the point. Seriously, why are you doing it? Why, why are you like this? Don't you think you'd be much happier if you just stopped? Magda says without looking up, I'm not doing anything. The boy shrugs, stops thinking of her, walks away. Magda remains where she is, on the cobblestones. She says it again to the empty quadrangle. I'm not doing anything. They don't believe her. They know it's her fault, whatever Magda is doing. And they won't forgive her for it. Not that time, or the next. It's late at night, in the underlit, golden-hued swimming pool where they hold Magda down and shave her hair. 
Her yells echo across the rippling water. It takes two of them to hold her in place, one to do the cutting, and five to watch and laugh. The hair falls into the water in great black cascades, like weeds spreading tendrils across the surface, and she kicks and yells, and I watch from darkness as she kicks and yells, as the razor slides across the nape of her neck to her forehead, and they tell her mock reprovingly to stay still, otherwise she'll be nicked by the blades, and she'll only have herself to blame. What happens next, the children say afterwards, should not have happened. Because as the razor sloughs through Magda's hair, quite suddenly a thick ribbon of Magda's head comes away with it. And then the razor streaks away more deeply a second time, removing a raw and shining streak of flesh, and a third time, and a fourth. And they're all so busy laughing and holding her down that they simply fail to notice until their hands are slick with blood and the remaining hair is dangling loose from a missing scalp and Magda's face is divided in scraps, floating in the water and gazing back up at her. And as I watch from the other side of the glass, the laughter turns to shrieking, and they drop what's left of Magda and turn and run, stumbling over each other, skidding along the tiles of the swimming pool, stumbling through the doors, crying out for help. All nine of the perpetrators require trauma counselling. When they return to school after a six-month suspension, they return as wounded veterans of some grim foreign war, shell-shocked, only sitting together at lunch, muttering amongst themselves as if nobody else could truly understand what they'd undergone. Perhaps it was her fault, the other children say in the canteen for as long as they remember the events of that night. After all, she never told them that something truly was wrong, that the razor was cutting flesh instead of hair. She just kept kicking and yelling and pleading with them, the same as before. So how were they to know that something was wrong? We keep finding hairs in the drains for months after that, long and slick and greasy, clogging up the chlorine filters, making us wretch. How was your first week? Allegra asks me that evening. It's just for a little while, isn't it? She has just caught me leafing through her work papers in the study, attempting in vain to decipher the impossible scrawls and churning blueprints upon them. I told her I was trying to find a book, which turned out to have been prominently placed on the coffee table all along, and now I have to pretend that I'm worn out from work. She asks me if it gives me the time I need to think, at least. I don't respond because I don't want her to know that I'm satisfied with her choice for me. But the truth is, I am enjoying my time working at the old preparatory. I like the boggy and unkempt flats of the school grounds, the lawless sea of conifers that surround the pristine lawns and pompous little red brick buildings. I like the peace and quiet, 
the tedious and ageless task of prizing up the black roots that grow beneath the grass. And I want to keep watching, to see if Magda comes back. The answer is yes, of course. And worse every time. Some of the Magdas come with mothers or fathers who show up, quietly and humbly, to collect the belongings after their daughter is broken. Others are simply alone. Some end striking out at the world that hates them so much. Others submit quietly and unhappily to being destroyed. Neither course of action, as far as I can tell, leads to any kind of good. The third Magda picks up a flagpole from the corner of the school playing fields and thrusts the point through the chest of a boy who is insulting her. He is, the teachers announce with relief to a packed assembly the following morning, expected to make a full recovery. The sixth Magda comes as a surprise, because she had been someone else beforehand, a sunny and popular girl who excelled at the arts, until she finds herself unexpectedly pregnant and the corridors echo with hisses of whore, and she is unmistakably a Magda now. Her eyes sunken and hopeless, her sketchbooks pressed across the weight of her belly. When they find her, she's made art from her own skin with a Stanley knife stolen from the crafts cupboard. The thirteenth Magda is sitting in an exam room in her final year, when she puts down her pencil and sits on the floor, curling her knees into her chest and her head between her knees, screaming and shaking and contracting further into herself until she is only back in shins, and then only a tight, shrieking ball of flesh and blazer, and then nothing but a scream that lingers a moment longer in the hostile silence of the busy hall. The 18th Magda lingers on, scorned and ignored, for several years as a teaching assistant, before she finally fades from view. And the longer I watch, the more I feel that matters must surely be escalating, or at the very least complicating, that each new Magda's pain seems to carry the echoes of an earlier incarnation. Like the 26th Magda who was found in the pond with a tent peg lodged in her own cheek where the boys had stuck it. Like the 32nd Magda, who, before she vanishes into the woods, shaves her own scalp bald and leaves the long hairs in the swimming pool for us to find. If the teachers of the old preparatory agree with me, they do not show it. Each new case is greeted with the same wry, tired smirk and token suspensions or punishment for those involved. The adults, too, understand that there are some who simply do not survive here and that it is those who, as they mutter in the staff room, bring it upon themselves who suffer most. And it's remarkable to watch how each company of schoolchildren gain a greater understanding of their own selves through their rejection of the Magda that had been assigned to them. Time and again I watch as friendship is born from cruelty, as a community is shaped by its own harm. 
With each new atrocity, I watch a generation blooming into life. There have been so many Magdas now. Even when I leave Askew, and as I fumble amongst the black roots that are spreading everywhere, hacking at the withered protrusions cracking a path upwards through the concrete, I am thinking more and more of my escape. They will only continue to proliferate. More and more, I find myself strangely hoping that there is some deliberate purpose behind this long passage of suffering and humiliation. Because this, this happy, unthinking cruelty, this is not something born of this city. Because in London, I too was Magda, once upon a time, before I gathered up my things and ran. Because it was a skew that found me, and welcomed me in with open arms when no one else would. I find myself searching for meaning now, in the teacher's bland, inscrutable expressions, as they announce that yet another Magda has scrawled bizarre phrases along the walls of the science lab with her compass, that a Magda has leapt from the highest window of the bell tower, that a Magda is sobbing alone in the abandoned bathrooms on the fourth floor, and has been for hours, that a Magda is unravelling amongst the trees, her flesh spooling out in thin and agonising strands of silver, in every direction, like long hairs, like the string of violins. I have felt my way through the soil in the black woods, my hands clenched against those tangled, impossible roots, trying to find my way to some kind of centre. Because I can accept the damage done, the annihilation of so many of us, so many young and so many loathed, so long as there's purpose and progress towards some final justice, so long as the searing flame shapes what it kills. Perhaps beneath the silent lake that lies at the bottom of the school's sweeping gravel drive, I'll find the unseen heart of the black roots dragging themselves through soil and tarmac, and perhaps there, under clear water, I'll find the first beginnings of the primordial Magda, mother of all us outcasts, a clenched mandrake child of pain and sorrow, flinching at the world's touch, poisoning the earth with her tears. And so I'll stay here, for just a few weeks longer. I will keep my watch over this immense crucible of pain, and wait to see what grows. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.